Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Good to see you too, Travis. Thanks. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. You know, one of the things that we tend to do is we tend to look at the past with a sense of nostalgia. We oftentimes, we tend to look at the past through rose-colored glasses, and we think that everything in the past was simpler, was better, and our world was somehow more moral than it is right now. And pretty much by every metric, that's not true. (laughs) It shocks people when you actually look at what do we mean by better? What do we mean by simpler? None of that's actually true. And it wasn't more moral. It was no, uh, it was certainly not more moral, but it was not less moral either. Uh, It's never been the case. The world wasn't simpler. It wasn't more, it wasn't necessarily better. It wasn't more moral. But we tend to look at the past with a sense of nostalgia, forgetting how very hard each day was for a large segment of society. Forgetting how complex the world was. Forgetting how sin was expressed within our own culture. We tend to gloss over that. And we tend to look back very longingly. We do the same thing, by the way, with the early church. Uh, Christians will oftentimes look look back at the early church and they will tend to paint the early church with a brush of idealism as if sin didn't affect it. And the church just sat around and sang Kumbaya every Sunday for two hours. And that's certainly not the case. It wasn't the case in any of the early churches and it certainly wasn't the case in the church of Corinth. The church of Corinth was anything but ideal. Because rather than sharing their possessions, they were suing each other to get more stuff. Can you believe that? That never happens in the church in America. Rather than living in unity, they had rank disunity over their pastors. Rather than eating their meals together, they cut in line during communion so that they can get drunk off the, off the wine. Can you imagine that? Which is why we only have Welch's. And we give it to you in a one-ounce shot. Thank you very much. It's the whole re- it actually is the whole reason why Welch's got, uh, got introduced into the church during the Prohibition era. Welch's say, hey, we can fix a problem. And boy, did they ever. They are making a boatload off the church. Um, that's why Welch's came into place. And rather than studying the scriptures together, the early church, at least the church in Corinth, rather than studying the scriptures together, they were sleeping together. The old tried and true method here. Uh, Let's go study the scriptures. End up being horizontal. This was happening all over the place in Corinth. All over the place. They, and we look, we look back at, I remember standing in a, in a street corner in Charleston, South Carolina. And a, and a church van rolled by, and the name of the church was the First Corinthians Church. And I thought, man, you could not have picked a stupider name to name a church than First Corinthians Church. Are you out of your mind? But see, this is what we do. We look back on the church with a sense of nostalgia. 
And, and if everything I just said to you, if you look at that and you think, wow, that doesn't sound all that much different than the American church, you'd be right. You'd be very much correct. And that's because, here's the reason why. The sin matrix, the sin matrix, uh, when I say sin matrix, that's shorthand for how sin gets expressed in the culture. How the predominant Sin, predominant sins of any culture gets expressed within time. And every culture has its own um, matrix of sin. How the sin that is is embedded in the culture gets expressed. So the sin matrix of, of Corinth is almost identical to the sin matrix of America. And um, that's why... When we read First Corinthians, every time I every time I open it up and I, I start reading it for prepping the message, I just think, "Oh my gosh, it's not that far from Corinth to Oregon. Uh, it is right next door." And there are three ways, three predominant ways that the sin matrix of Corinth and the United States gets expressed. Here's here's how they are. First, they are highly individualistic. They were and we are highly individualistic, meaning we don't believe we belong to anyone. Not to God, nor to one another. And you can see this by how we trample upon one another. We think we're autonomous. We're a law unto ourselves. And we are very intent on doing our own thing in our own way. We even have a secular hymn about it. I did it my way. And bad mistakes. You can sing along if you want. Somewhere my wife is thinking, this is a bad mistake right here. You singing is a bad mistake. Uh, but we have our own secular hymn about it that we love. Old blue eyes. Um, I did it my way. That is our secular hymn. So the Corinthians, they were, and we are highly individualistic. And that got brought right into the church, and it still gets brought right into the church. And it comes out in the attitude of, I'll just do my own thing. I do my own thing. You do your own thing. Uh, we won't hold each other accountable for anything. I'll just come in and I'll consume. I'll just slip in, slip out. I'll consume but not contribute. That's highly individualistic. And the body of Christ is never called to be highly individualistic. We're called to be brothers and sisters in the Lord, that we belong to a family of God. But they were, and we are, highly individualistic. Second, by the way, am I going too fast? I had a lot of coffee this morning. Sometimes when that happens, I get rambling. Um, Secondly, they were incredibly materialistic, highly individualistic, incredibly materialistic. And that comes out in the form of greed, of course, the desire for more. And I don't know if you know this, the word greed, it carries with it the connotation of a hand, a, a hand grasping, always grasping for more, never being content with what you have. And that's certainly the case in Corinth, and that's certainly the case for the American church. And even one of our own prophets says this. Uh, our, our prophets in our day are not like the prophets of old. Our prophets come out in the way of movies. And our culture's thirst for more gets immortalized in the film Wall Street, where Michael Douglas's character Gordon Gekko stands up in a shareholder meeting, and he says, greed for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed cuts through and it clarifies the evolutionary spirit. Now, now take that imagery because I remember when that came out, people were like, oh, 
yeah, that's right. Greed is good. And now listen, that's exactly how the, the Corinthians were. And it got brought right on into the church. And we'll see it next week when we look at chapter 6, if we get through chapter 5 today. We'll, we'll see how it got brought, brought right in into the church and brothers and sisters in the Lord were suing each other over property and over money. So they were incredibly materialistic. And then lastly, they were blatantly, unapologetically, sexually immoral. The Corinthians had great pride, and I chose that word deliberately, they had great pride in their lack of sexual mores. The term to Corinthianize, it meant to be licentious. It meant to be sexually immoral. And they prided themselves in this, as we do in our culture. We even have parades about it. And we come up with catchy slogans that help us market it and celebrate it. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. You see, this is the sin matrix. This is how it gets embedded into a culture, and this is how it gets expressed within a culture. And this is what was happening in Corinth. And when Paul planted the gospel in the soil of Corinth, he, and, a, and a group of people got saved, praise God a group of people got saved, but he knew because he planted the gospel in the soil of Corinth, he was going to be dealing with this, these issues all the time. Because these were the issues that were embedded in the culture. And one of the, one of the elements of pastoral ministry is to help people who have come to Christ examine that if the presuppositions of the culture are actually out of line with the gospel. And oh, by the way, a great many of them are. And one of the marks, one of the essential elements of any pastoral ministry is to help a person who is a Christian hold up their presuppositions, the way that they've been living, and say, wait a second, does this actually line up with what the gospel actually says? And if it does, okay. There are some things that, that does. Uh, but a great many of them, you got to toss because they don't actually line up with how the gospel works. And this is what Paul's been doing uh, as we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians. He has offered course correction to the Corinthians regarding the nature of wisdom because they assumed, because it was in their culture, they assumed that, that um, anything that looked impressive by worldly standards was automatically wise. And Paul says, that's not true. That's not true at all because the cross... The cross, which was foolishness to the Greeks, and it was a stumbling block to the Jews, he says, it doesn't look wise, but it's actually the wisdom of God. It's actually the wisdom of God, and it's done more. The cross has done more to better humanity than anything the world's offered. So he offers them course correction on the nature of wisdom. Then he offers them course correction on the disunity that was taking place within the church over their pastoral leadership. And Paul says, what are you doing? Why are you arguing and dividing over this? All pastors are simply servants. They're nobodies telling everybody about somebody. That's all a pastor is. That's all you got to be thinking about. So stop focusing on the pastor and start focusing on the Lord. One plants and another waters, but it's the Lord who gives the, who gives the growth. So don't focus on them. Focus on the Lord. And then last week in chapter 4, we looked at it. Paul appeals to them as the father in the faith and offers correction on the complacency that was happening within the church. And their view of Christian ministry. Now today in, his, today in our text, he's going to continue with correction. But the correction today is over the church's lack of response to ongoing 
unrepentant sin within the church. That's what the correction is going to be about today. Aren't you glad you came to church today? It's a sermon on church discipline, everybody's favorite topic. But this is what Paul's going to address today. He's saying there's, there's ongoing unrepentant sin in the church and you guys haven't done anything about it. You're sitting there as if it's not actually happening. And so he's going to address that. And what he's going to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I'll just give it to you up front before we move there. He's going to say these five things. He's going to tell us, or these four things. Um, he'll tell us the need for church discipline. That's in verses 1 and first part of 2. The need for church discipline. He'll tell us the method for church discipline. That's verses 2 through 5, the second half of verse 2 through 5. He'll tell us the purpose of church discipline. That's verses 8 through 13. No, 6 through 8. The purpose of church discipline is 6 through 8. And then the realm of church discipline, and that's in verses 9 through 13. So with that, let's get into the text. And first, it's the need for church discipline. And look at what Paul says in verse 1. He says, it's actually reported... It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Some of your translations will say you're boastful. You're arrogant or boastful. Ought you not rather to mourn? So Paul, he gets this report about a specific situation that was taking place in Corinth. And it was well known by those outside of the church. And we don't know who the report came from. It could have came from Chloe's people uh, who, who did business in Corinth. It could have came um, from uh, Stephan- Stephanus or Fortunatus. Paul tells us in, in uh, uh, chapter 16 that they had come from Corinth to Ephesus. We don't really know uh, who who the report came from, it doesn't really matter. What matters, though, is the report itself. And the report was that there was sexual immorality taking place. Sexual immorality. And the word sexual immorality, it's the Greek word porneia. It's where we get our word pornography from. Uh, and porneia, it's kind of a catch-all word. It means, essentially, anything before or beyond... So anything before premarital sex or anything beyond heterose- or, uh, extramarital uh, sex. Anything before or beyond um, heterosexual, monogamous, covenanted, committed, married relationship. You've got to be really specific in our culture by what you mean by marriage. I don't know if you notice that. So you've got to put in all those, those key buzzwords. Heterosexual, monogamous covenanted, covenanted to the Lord and, and to one another, committed, meaning a lifetime, married relationship. Paul says, any, porneia is anything before that or beyond that. That's the idea of porneia. Um, and what was unique about this particular situation uh, in Corinth was that it shocked, the situation that was taking place in the church, it shocked even the people in Corinth. It shocked even the Corinthian culture. Now, how bad does it got to be if it's going to shock the surrounding culture? This is what Paul says. Look at what he says. He says it's actually reported. It's actually reported that there's a kind of sexual immorality taking place 
that's not even tolerated by the pagans around you. When the, now think about that. When the surrounding culture has a higher level of morality than the church, boy, you have every reason to go back and examine your life, do you not? And that's what's taking place. Your, cor- your individual life and your corporate life. If the culture around you has a higher standard of morality than the church, you probably don't actually belong to a church. Again, you're probably just being an individual. You're not coming under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And what you've done in that situation is um, you have a religious club, basically, and you've lost any hope of being a witness to the surrounding culture because you're no longer distinct as a community. You're just blending in with the rest of the culture. The standards of the church should never be lower than those of the world. But that's, that's what was taking place in Corinth. Well, why? Because t- Paul tells the second part of verse 1, look at what he says. He says, um, for a man has his father's wife. We call that incest. <laughs> Is this his mom? Well, it's probably not his, his biological mom. Um, probably what had happened is his bio mom had, had passed away and his dad remarried. And when he remarried, he probably married a much younger woman, which was commonplace in that culture. It's commonplace in our culture. Uh, he probably had married a trophy wife. And uh, we don't know if his dad had passed away at this point or not. Hopefully, I was thinking about it, hopefully his dad's passed away or it's going to be a really awkward Thanksgiving dinner when they get together on Thursday. Can you imagine? Um, but he's, he's shacking up with his what was at one point his stepmom. Uh, we don't really know if the dad's passed away or not again, but we're, we're hoping he has. But what we do know is because Paul puts this in the present tense. If you're in the Greek, he puts it in the present tense. Is that this man was a Christian. And he was a member of the body of Christ. He was a member of the church. Because remember, in that culture, it was not socially or financially beneficial to be a member of the church. It didn't benefit you in any way to go against the culture and to belong to a tiny little church, a tiny little outpost. It didn't benefit you at all. So this guy probably, no, more than probably, he was a Christian. But he was caught up in this sin because the sexual immorality in that culture was such that the culture didn't see it as all that big of a deal. The incest they saw as a big deal, but the, all the other sexual stuff in that culture, they thought it was perfectly okay. And this guy just took it a little bit further. And so we have every reason to believe he was a Christian, but he was engaged in this ongoing, unrepentant, incestuous relationship. And while all sorts of sexual immorality was permitted in Corinth... Incest was frowned upon. And by the way, notice that Paul's not addressing the woman. He's not addressing the woman, probably because she's not a Christian. And therefore, she's not under the sexual ethics of Christ's community. Not under the the sexual ethics of the Christian faith. And therefore, she's not to be judged by the Christian community. And we'll talk more about that last piece in a moment. And notice also that Paul's not shocked by the sin itself. That come, that, that's a little bit shocking to me. But he's not shocked by the sin itself. 
because he knew how sexualized the Corinthian culture was. And therefore, again, he knew as a pastor, when he planted the church in Corinth, he knew this was going to be, he was going to be working with people, helping people all the time with sexual sin. Because again, that was how part of the, the predominant sin matrix in that culture was sexual sin. And so he knew as a pastor, he was going to be dealing with sexual sin all the time, helping people try to get free of it. And by the way, that's, you talk about, um, how do I want to say this? You talk about what pastors do in our culture a lot of the time. It's this. It's helping people get free of sexual immorality in their life. More often than not, when, when a married couple comes before me, one of the pastors, not just me, I actually don't do much, uh, much of this anymore, but when they come before any of the other pastors and there's a marital situation, more often than not in our culture, it's somehow related to sex. Um, and that's just the reality of life. In this culture, that's one of the realities of life. And it, not any different in Corinth. So Paul wasn't shocked by the sin itself. What Paul was shocked by and what he was upset about was the man's lack of repentance and the church's lack of response. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, he lays out the situation. He says, and you're arrogant or you're boastful. Ought you not rather to mourn? Paul says, this is a well-known situation. And you guys, you guys are arrogant about this. You're boastful about it. You're proud of it. You're proud of this. Well, why would they be proud of it? Well, there's a couple different options. Maybe, maybe because um, they wanted to be able to, you know, put out a rainbow flag outside of their church, church entrance and say that we're the inclusive church. And we'll compromise what we really know the scriptures say to be true so that we can be inclusive. And we pride ourselves on our diversity. We really want to be wise in the world's eyes. So maybe that was it. Maybe, maybe they had philosophical underpinnings that they hadn't brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Because remember the Greeks, the Greeks thought the immaterial was good and the material was bad. They thought the immaterial was good and the immaterial was going to be saved. So your soul would be saved. But they thought the material or the body was bad and it wasn't going to be saved. So therefore it doesn't really matter what you do with your body. And Paul's going to say next chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he's going to say that's hogwash. Because when Christ was resurrected, he was resurrected in a body. And so both soul and body are saved in the resurrected. He's going to say in First uh, Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, he says, he says, don't you know that you were bought with a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. But maybe, maybe, maybe they had philosophical underpinnings. Their, their philosophical underpinnings gave, uh, gave, gave rise to their lack of response in the church. Or maybe, or maybe... Um, they thought not dealing with it was simply a form of Christian love. We'll just, we'll tolerate it. We won't deal with it and we'll just hope for the best. Um, we see a terrible situation happening and we know it's going to lead to destruction, but we're not, we're not going to do anything about it in the name of love. Let me ask you, do you do that with anybody you really love? Do you do that with your kids? If you see your kids are going down a path that you know is going to lead to destruction, do you just sit there and say, well, we'll just hope for the best? Or do you actually step in and say, hey, you need some course correction here because what I see here is not good and it's going to lead to destruction on your end. 
See, they, whatever the reason is, the Corinthians, they weren't doing anything about it. And what Paul says, whatever the case may be, there's a case here for church discipline. And that's what he says beginning in verse 2 through verse 5. Paul gives us the method. He says there's a real need for church discipline. And now what he does is he gives us the method for church discipline. And it's incredibly helpful for us to see it. Look at what he says. Second part of verse 2, he says, Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and my spirit is present, because we're unified by the, by the Holy Spirit, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to, to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So Paul says you're boasting about this, when in fact you should be grieved over this. And more than that, you should have already dealt with this. He should have already been, this guy should have already been removed from his, from your midst. And what Paul's doing is he's taking Jesus' teaching and he's applying it. Jesus is teaching on church discipline and he's applying it because in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is talking about someone who's entrenched in sin. And Jesus lays out the method of how we should, one of the methods of how we should deal with it. Jesus says, if your brother sins, Go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he doesn't listen to you, take one or more with you, so that by the, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. Meaning put him out of the church. Have nothing to do with them. And we know this, that discipline sometimes has, has to happen. Discipline is not inconsistent with love. It, it, discipline is not inconsistent with love. It is the lack of discipline that is actually inconsistent with love. You discipline your kids because you love them. Is that not true? Yeah. And nobody loves disciplining our kids. But you have to do it from time to time because you love them. That's how, and that's exactly how the Lord is with us. We're told in Hebrews chapter 12, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he punishes everyone he accepts as a child or as a son. And what Paul's saying here is part of bringing discipline, um, part of, he's saying part of love is bringing discipline when discipline is needed. And Paul says, as your father in the faith, remember, he's reminding them, he's the father in the faith, back in chapter 4. He says, as your father in the faith, I've already rendered my decision on this. And when a father renders a decision in that culture, that's the decision. He goes, I've already rendered the decision. Look at verse 3. He says, for though I'm absent in the body, I'm, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Now, again, notice he doesn't talk about the woman because the woman's not a Christian. He says, I already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So Paul calls them 
to give this guy the left foot of fellowship. That's what he's saying. He says, you got to give him the left foot of fellowship. You got to boot him to put him out of the fellowship and then to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Just got really quiet in here. Whoa, what in the world is that about? Well, handing him over to Satan is the, essentially the same thing as thrusting this man back out into the world. B- putting him outside of the church, away from the care and the comfort of the Christian community. And the Christian community, a minority community, which the Christian culture was, the Christian community was any minority community, it does a much better job of caring and loving their people. That is absolutely true. And let that sink in for a minute. Because the Christian community in our culture is not the minority community. But minority communities do a much better job of loving and caring for their people. But in that day, the Christian community was the minority community. And Paul says, uh, to deliver him over to Satan. What that means is you put him out of the side of the church. You put him back out into the world, away from the care and the comfort of the Christian community. With the hopes that what it will do, it will shock them and bring them back to their senses. At this point, it's as if they're living in un- ongoing, he's living in ongoing unrepentant sin. And that he's essentially lost his spiritual pulse. And what they need is they need somebody to come along with a spiritual defibrillator and shock him, just like somebody yell, clear, and shock him back to his senses. So he wakes up and he gets his pulse back. Paul says, this guy is, he's ongoing, unrepentant. He has lost his spiritual pulse. And you need to boot him outside of the church so that he comes back to his senses. And so he wakes up. That's the, shock him back into, into having a pulse. This is the, what Paul's hoping. It's hoping it will bring him back to his senses. And though the process may be painful, the intent, you got to catch this, the intent is for his good. This is what Paul says in verse 5. He says, this method isn't, or this method is meant to bring about the destruction of your flesh. Now that doesn't sound very good. It's meant to bring about the destruction of your flesh. And the destruction of your flesh um, probably isn't referring to your literal body. It's probably not referring to your literal body because the, the word Paul uses here is the Greek word sarks. And more often than not, when Paul uses the word sarks, he's talking about your sinful nature. He would use soma if he was talking about your, your literal body. But he uses the word sarks, and more often than not, sarks refers to your sinful nature. So what Paul's saying is, the intent of church discipline is that once you're removed from the care and the comfort of the Christian community, you're going to get out into the world, and you're going to realize that the sinful nature has been lying to you the entire time. You're going to realize this sin that you won't repent of, that's been promising you life and joy and freedom and peace, it doesn't deliver. It may bring you a momentary happiness, but it's going to be followed by a ton of pain. And now that you realize that, now that you realize the sinful nature won't deliver on the promise that it's made to you, all of a sudden what that does, when you realize it won't, it won't deliver, it will drain the sinful nature of its appeal to you. Whatever the sin is that you won't repent of, Paul's saying, when you realize you get booted out into the, into the world... And you see that the sinful nature has been lying to you the entire time. What happens in that moment is the sinful nature 
is drained of its appeal over you and its sway and its sway over you. Does that make sense? Go, yeah, does that make sense? Okay. So the church, the ter- church discipline, it's to bring about the destruction of your sinful nature. No, no show of hands. But don't you want your sinful nature to be destroyed if you're a Christian? Don't you want to actually grow into Christ-likeness? Don't you actually want to pursue holiness so that you can better represent the Lord and you can enjoy the freedom that he's given you, the grace that he's given you all the more? That's, see, see, we look at it and we think, well, that sounds kind of harsh. Well, sometimes severe measures have to be taken for the overall good. Um, sometimes a doctor has to cut you in order to heal you. Is that not true? And that's the situation here. So then the second part of verse 5, he says, So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The aim, now catch it please, the aim of all church discipline is not punitive. It's restorative. And it has to be done with the aim of restoration and love. We want to see a person restored to the Lord, uh, restored to the Lord, and to the Christian community. Well, then the question that you may be thinking right now is, well, when do you do this? Well, let's get real practical. When do you do this? Well, let me give you two examples. Years ago, nobody in this church, so you can breathe a little easier. Years ago, I had a guy come to me after his wife. Uh, found out he was looking at pornography. And he came to me and he said, Hey, um, my wife said, if I don't come and tell you that I've been looking at pornography, she's going to leave me. And then he followed that up with these words. He says, I hate the fact that I hurt her. But I thank the Lord that she found out because I've been trying to defeat this for years in silence and I can't. And he said, now I want you to see what he said. How did, how did this come about? Did he just come and confess it? No, he was caught. But then he saw, he, he saw him being caught as the means that the Lord was going to use in his life to finally get over this addiction. And so we didn't kick him out of the church. Because he was broken up over it. He was repentant of it. He saw this as the means that the Lord was going to use him to confess his sins to another brother and for there to be church accountability. And so we didn't kick him out of the church. It was Actually, I was incredibly proud of the guy for coming and telling me. Because he could have chosen anybody. And it's a little intimidating to come to the pastor of the church and say, hey, i got to tell you this. Um, so, but he, And I look back on it now, eight years, I think it's about eight years later, he and his wife are doing great. They're walking with the Lord. Another example. Four or five years later, four or five uh, years ago, a guy who was attending this church started dating a woman. And um, both were attending this church, and they would get together. And then um, he would walk around her house nude quite frequently. And she was a little perturbed by that. She didn't think that was right. So she came and uh, told me about it. And then as she was telling me about it, she she lays out all of his uh, emails that he put on Craigslist trying to solicit women with nude photos. And she gave these all to me. And so he came in, and I have all of his Craigslist emails, thankfully not the photos, um, but I have all of them. And this guy, who thought he was God's gift to the church, 
and apparently God's gift to women. I mean, <laughs> um, when I showed him all of the the emails from Craigslist, he said, "Yeah, this is what I do," and that was it. Yeah, this is what I do. So what? Now his attitude towards and now note the thing here: he had been caught as well, right? He'd been caught as well, but didn't view it as God's means of deliverance. Saw it as no big deal. So at that point, I said, boy, do not step foot back on our campus. Um, you cannot have any, you can't be a part of our church at any level. Why? Well, it's all about the attitude regarding the sin itself. Everything depends on the attitude towards the sin itself. Whether it comes up just in straight confession or whether it comes about because a guy is caught, whatever the case, or not just a guy. By the way, those two examples were men. I could give you just as many examples as women. Sometimes we only think sexual immorality happens with men, and that's certainly not the case. But notice, both, both were caught. One confessed and wanted to change. The other one didn't and was quite boastful about it. So everything, everything depends upon how they view their sin. And this guy, the guy in Corinth, he was engaged in this ongoing unrepentance, and, and, was, and the church was boasting about it. Now listen, there's no cookie-cutter model to any of this. There's no cookie-cutter model. You, you, you apply the Matthew 18 passage. Of course you do. Of course you do. But there's no cookie-cutter model. What you do is you don't enter into it hastily. You bathe it in prayer. And this is for all of us. Because we're a part of the church. You're a part of the church. You, you, you'll deal with people. You don't, you, don't, you don't get to that place hastily. You bathe it in prayer, you extend grace, you offer support, you examine your own heart in the matter. But if the person is engaged in ongoing unrepentant sin and they're unwilling to change, that's the, the key. If they're unwilling to change, then you have to follow Jesus' method and you have to apply Paul's instruction and remove them from fellowship. And hopefully, the Lord will do a work in their life and will bring them to repentance and confession and bring them back to the body of Christ. That's the aim. So Paul tells them the need for church discipline. He tells them the method for church discipline. And now in verses 6 through 8, Paul's going to tell them uh, the purpose of church discipline, and we'll move quickly here. Verse 6, he says, You're boasting about the church. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. There's a better name than 1 Corinthians for a church. New lump fellowship. <laughs> you never see that one. It says, cleanse out the old leaven that you might be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Hmm. Hold on to that. We'll come back. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So look at what Paul says here about the church. Uh, he says, undealt with sin in the, body of, uh, in the body, undealt with sin in the body is a lot like undealt with cancer. It'll continue to spread. It'll continue to spread and it'll kill you from the inside out. This is why Paul says it's so important to deal with it up front. And Paul, he takes them back to the Passover feasts. And he says, everybody knows that a little leaven works its way all the way through the batch. And he says, so it is with sin in the church. A little bit of sin that's tolerated will just continue to spread. 
if given the opportunity, it will permeate a whole church just as a little bit of leaven permeates a whole loaf. So church discipline is necessary. It's never wanted, but it's necessary to arrest the spread of sin and compromise all the way throughout the church. And then Paul says something that's just flat out amazing. Look at what he says in verse 7. He says, cleanse out the old leaven so that you might be a new lump as you really are unleavened. How could Paul say that? How could he say that about this congregation? How could he say about any congregation? But particularly, how could he say that about the church in Corinth that was known to be flat out crazy? How could he look at them and say, you're actually unleavened already? There's actually not really any sin. You're positionally, you don't have any sin. How could he say that? Because remember, leaven throughout the Old Testament um, always always give a picture of sin. It was always a picture of evil. And he, he looks at the church in Corinth and he says, you really are unleavened. <gasps> what? How? Well, because of what he says next. Look at the second part of verse 7. Because Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Meaning because of Christ's sacrifice, the true Passover lamb, whose blood cleanses us, whose blood covers us and separates us from the penalty of sin. That's amazing. He says, yeah, posi- or practically, I know you guys are making mistakes. I know you're sinning. I know there's unrepentant sin. He goes, but positionally, because of what Christ has done, his blood covers you. You've been cleansed. And you're called to live out what Christ's grace has worked into you. He says, positionally, you are in Christ." In practice, you're not living that way, but I know who you really are. I know who you are because I saw the, I saw the, the gospel uh, bring grace to you, bring life to you, give you a new life. I know who you really are. Live out what God's worked into you through the work of Jesus Christ. That's amazing. And by the way, if you're struggling with sin right now, in major sin that you're unrepentant of and you know it, you've got to listen to Paul's advice here. You have to go back to who you really are in Christ. You have to put away... You have to cleanse out of your heart, just like the, the, Jew, the Jews did every night of the Passover. They had to go through their house and cleanse out all the leaven. You have to do the same too, same thing too. And say, I know who I really am in Christ. I really am unleavened. I may feel trapped by this sin sometimes, but that's not who I really am. I'm a new creation in Christ. I'm going to walk in that identity from this point forward. That's what you got to do. It's an amazing pulse. This is who you really are. And then verse 8, he goes on. He says, therefore, let us celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So he says the purpose of the church discipline isn't to produce moral purity. Just note that, and we'll talk about it in a minute. The purpose of the church discipline isn't to produce moral purity in the church, because you'll never get there. We all sin. We all need to be cleansed from sin. But the purpose of church discipline and the church life is that we walk in sincerity and truth with one another. That when we sin, we confess it, we repent of it, and we deal with it in grace and truth. Um, But not that we're going to get to moral purity. He says the goal is sincerity and truth. 
So what's Paul told us? He's told us the need for church discipline, the method of church discipline, the purpose of church discipline, and now in verses 9 through 13, the realm of church discipline. Look at what he says. He says, I wrote, you in, I wrote to you in my letter, a previous letter we don't have, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters. If I meant that, you'd have to go outside of the world. Paul's saying, I, I didn't mean that you couldn't associate with anybody who was sexually immoral. I didn't mean you couldn't associate with anybody who was greedy or was a swindler. Because if that was the case, you couldn't, not only would you have to leave Corinth, you'd have to leave the world. Um, you, that's not what I meant at all. Um, so maybe what had happened is Paul, in this previous letter, uh, wrote them and said, you're not to associate with sexually immoral people. And he meant the people in the church who claimed to be Christians but actually weren't living out the gospel, sexually immoral or greedy or swindlers or whatever, they took it as, as carte blanche basically to isolate themselves from the world and kind of adopt the attitude of a, it's us four and no more. But that's not the pattern of Christ. That's not the way of Christ. Well, what's the way of Christ? It's the incarnation. The incarnation is the pattern of Christian ministry. Christ didn't separate himself from the world. Well, what did he do? He came all the way into the world. He came all the way down to redeem the world. That's the pattern for Christians. See, a lot of Christians in a lot of parts of our world, they want to isolate themselves from the world because the world's immoral. But how will the gospel ever come to anybody if we do that? No, no, no. The incarnation is the pattern for Christian ministry. Now, we have to be wise about it, of course, But the call is the same. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. And Paul says, if I meant that you couldn't associate with anybody who was sexually immoral or sexual or greedy or a swindler or an idolater, not only would you have to leave Corinth, you'd have to leave the whole world. And that doesn't fit the way of Christ. Christ comes into the world to deal with the sin, to deal with the heartache and to bring hope and restoration. He says the church isn't to, now note this, he says the church isn't to judge the world, but to have contact with the world. So that we can be salt and light to the world. So that we can bring the gospel to the world. He goes on, verse 11, look at what he says. He says, uh, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother or a sister. I'm writing to you now. This is what I'm actually writing. Not to associate with anyone who bears the name or a bro- uh, the name of a brother or a sister if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed. Now, uh, I got so much to say here. See the term associate? That doesn't mean you have to shun them. It doesn't mean you have to treat them like garbage. Uh, it doesn't mean any of those things. It means within the fellowship. They're not to be, a, uh, in, they're not to be in the church. They're not to be, uh, have close intimacy with the, with the things of Christ, which means the communion, which means not coming to the Lord's table. They're not to be uh, that deeply connected. They're to be treated as unbelievers at this point. That's what he's saying. He says, I, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat. This is the idea of communion. Not even to eat with such a one. They're not to come to the Lord's table. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. 
God's job. That's God's job. We're not to judge the world. They're not under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You let the, let the world, uh, you, you love them well, you do your best to evangelize them, and you trust, you trust them to God. God will judge them. He says that's not the role of the church. God judges those outside. Purge, last part of verse 13, he quotes Deuteronomy. He says, purge the evil person. Purge the evil person from among you. The Corinthians um, essentially are to, are to follow God's instruction to Israel when there was flagrant, unrepented of sin in their midst. They're to remove it in order to preserve their holiness and in order to preserve their witness in the world. And the section ends right there. Aren't you glad? <laughs> that is a heavy section of Scripture. I've been looking forward to preaching it all week, i got to tell you. I knew you all would pay attention. It, every now and then you get a passage and you're like, oh man, it's going to be quiet and people will be paying attention. This is wonderful. But it is a heavy section. And nobody likes to talk about church discipline. And yet, when there's a brother or a sister in the Lord who's living in unrepentant sin, it has to be talked about from time to time. It has to be talked about. Because the stakes are high. Their relationship with the Lord is hindered. And our witness in the world hangs in the balance. And so the stakes are high and we have to talk about it. So let me close here in 10 minutes. i got 10 more minutes. Bear with me. Let me offer three thoughts that come straight out of this passage. Here's the first one. And please take note of it. First thought that comes out of this passage, it's better to have relational influence than a great church discipline policy paper. It's better to have relational influence than it is to have a great church discipline policy paper. I say that. Here's the reason why I say that. Because I know oftentimes after a message preached about church discipline, people will say, you know what we need? You know what we really need to fix this? We need to have a, a really tight, airtight church discipline, uh, church discipline policy because that will solve the problem. No, it won't. It won't solve the problem. And they'll want to spend a lot of time and a lot of energy on a paper that will make them feel like they're doing their job, make them feel like they're doing the right thing, and it'll look really great on the church website. And it'll signify to those people who are Christians that are looking for another church because the last church didn't have a church discipline paper, that it'll signify to them that we're really the moral church. Now listen, a church discipline paper, that's fine and good. It is. If you want to write one, you have at it. But better than a church discipline paper is to have relational influence in another person's life. So that when there's ongoing sin or they're caught up in something that you know is going to lead towards destruction, you're able to come up alongside of them and say, hey, uh, I see some things in your life that aren't good. You're not walking out the gospel in this area. Let's talk about it. Does that make sense? Relational influence is always way better than top-down discipline talk. Relational influence is where, it at, it, where it's at. Paul tells us, in Galatians chapter 6, brothers and sisters, if anyone, is, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, meaning you who have the Holy Spirit living within you and are actually living that well, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, which means it's much better, much better than a church discipline p- 
paper is relational influence so that you're able to offer course correction lovingly, privately, preferably, and purposefully. So much better. Much better to have relational authority than a church discipline paper. Not the church discipline paper. They have their place. They usually go in my trash can. But they have their place. Here's the second thing. second thing that comes right out of this. The moral purity of the church isn't the goal. Moral purity of the church isn't the goal. Well, if that's not the goal, then what is? We already saw it. Sincerity and truth. Sincerity and truth. That comes straight out of verse 8. There's no such thing as a morally pure church. And if you think you found one, don't attend it because you're going to mess it up. You're going to mess it up. So there's no such thing as a morally pure church because we all commit sin. We all commit sin. We all need cleansing. So don't go looking for a morally pure church. And again, if you find one, it's kind of like if you think you found the perfect church, don't go. You're going to screw it up. If you think you found a morally pure church, uh, I, I promise you there's no such thing. The goal is that we walk with one another in sincerity and truth, which goes back to the idea of not being highly individualistic. Brothers and sisters in Christ are to walk with one another in sincerity and truth, meaning we deal with our sin. We deal with it openly. And like the Israelites on the night of the Passover, we search out our own sin, our own sin. This isn't a call for us to become the religious police and we go searching everybody else's sin out. This means we deal with our own sin. We search out our own hearts. We search out our own sin. We repent of it and we confess our sins one to another so that our walk with the Lord is genuine and our witness to the watching world is truthful. Does that make sense? Here's the third thing that comes out of this. The third thing we see is that God takes our sin seriously. God takes our sin very, very seriously. How seriously? So seriously that he becomes one of us. Christ Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. How seriously does God take sin? So seriously that he comes down as one of us. He lives as one of us. He goes to the cross and dies for us. Jesus is the true Passover lamb. This is why when John the Baptist first sees Jesus, remember what he says? He says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, takes on human flesh and lives as one of us, goes to the cross and dies for us so that you and I, when we come to him in repentant faith, when we acknowledge our sin and we put our faith in him, he frees us from the penalty of death. He forgives us of our sins. He frees us from the penalty of sin, which is death. And then what he does is he enables us day by day to admit why we need his grace so much. Why we need his grace so much? Because we sin. But it, it doesn't shock us anymore. It doesn't scare us anymore because we know that we're completely forgiven. So how seriously does God take how seriously uh, does God take our sin? Oh, he takes it very, very seriously. And listen, you can take it seriously this morning by, as well. You can take it just as seriously as God takes it by coming to Christ as your Lord and Savior and acknowledging your sin before him and then asking him to forgive you of it and asking him to make you one of his kiddos, make, him, make you one of his disciples, and he'll do it just like that. He'll take you right now so that you can actually be freed from the penalty of sin. And you can actually live out 
your life with grace and sincerity and truth before one another. Is that not wonderful? It's wonderful. Let's pray. And I'll let you go. I've kept you too long. Father, we thank you for this really hard passage. And sometimes, Father, we look at these passages and we think, oh, man. And yet we need them. They are life-giving to us. You cut us in order to heal us, Lord. And this is one of those passages. And we pray, Father, that if there's anybody within the sound of my voice who is living with entrenched, unrepentant, ongoing sin, uh, that there would be a brother or a sister in their life who can come to them with real, real grace and real truth and can walk with them, can come alongside and will encourage them, hold them accountable, help them to see that the sin that they won't repent of actually isn't leading to freedom and joy and peace. It's actually entrapped them. And yet you break, uh, break the bonds of our sin, Father. So please help us as a church to do this uh, wisely and well with grace and with truth, modeling the way of Christ, Lord. And Father, I pray that if there's anybody within this room who wants to deal with their sin and take it seriously this morning by coming to Christ as their Lord and as their Savior, that as soon as I'm done praying here, that they would come up and they would uh, pray either with me or any of our prayer team um, ministers, that they would confess their sins to you, that they would trust you as their Lord and as their Savior this morning, and you would free them, you would forgive them, you would make them one of your children. We trust you for these things, Lord. And as we go back into our homes this afternoon with our family and friends, and as Thanksgiving approaches, and we will gather with our family and some of our friends, we pray that sincerity and truth would be lived, be lived out well in those, those, uh, those venues so that the gospel could carry weight and you could lead others to salvation. We trust you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.